The Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio is on the air. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various thoughts on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. And now for the moment you've all been waiting for. You're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of health entertainment. Tonight, we do part two of our American Gothic series with Toby Hooper. Papa Online Network. Upgrade. Well, I think it's like the second or third episode in the fourth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Louis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, as promised, 
we're picking up the pieces and gathering up the bits we never got to do due to the inevitable ticking of the clock. Uh, this week, we've taken on the second director intended for our American Gothic show. Uh, college professor and documentarian Toby Hooper seemed to come out of left field with his gruesome yet strangely bloodless take on the Ed Gein murders, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Parlaying the film's unprecedented success into a career in oddball horror, he'd give us strange but often effective shows like Eaton Alive, Salem's Lot, The Fun House, and Life Force, not to mention the strangely mainstream CG fest Poltergeist. So join us tonight as we dive into the spotty but often quite fascinating career of another leading light in American horror, Mr. Toby Hooper. So I'm Doc Savage, and with me is my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello. Yes, yes. Hello. Hello. Um, <laughs> uh, this is the allergy show. Yes, it is. <laughs> the allergy yeah, every, show, the morning everybody... late show. I, I actually just jumped out of the shower in time for the show to start, and you weren't there. I'm like, oh my god, what's going on? <laughs> So, time to pop that cork. <laughs> this this is the week of uh, craziness. Yeah, yeah. I got like uh, I'm actually sitting in a cast. Yeah. So I, I I tore my uh, Achilles tendon. I've been walking around with this thing for months. And then it gets better. I'm like nah, it's better. I don't have to go to the doctor. And then it's worse. I'm like oh shit. And what the doctor is like? Oh. I'll put on a soft cast. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> this is strange. They open up this foil, which seems like it's okay. on or something. Right. They wrap it up. And then they wrap gauze on it. And then they put some other shit in it. And you're like, oh, how am I going to go to work like this? Very difficult. Wow. That's like allergies. Everybody I run into goes, allergies, allergies. So well, how uh, all have to do to what? What? I was gonna say, how long do you think you're gonna be uh, more or less laid up? I'm not laid up. I'm running around like a chicken without a head. <laughs> oh, I'm well, still going to work back and forth. This is this is what it's all about, man. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah unfortunately, yeah. I mean, um, if if I. Uh, if I'm not in the situation I am now, employment-wise, I wouldn't uh-huh. have to be concerned. You know about this. I know. So, yeah, so I sort of don't have as much time as I would like. So if I took off a week until this comes off next Tuesday, actually, uh, okay, it'd be no, you know, it'd be no biggie. But I have to go to work for short staff, and uh, my you love this part. My fucking co-workers, I sent him an email saying, well, it's coming off uh, next week, so I'm taking off two days. But do you know how many people will be here was the response. <laughs> wow. That's like my job. Yeah, wow. like, well, yeah, Team support. You're a team player, and then you're the only one doing all the fucking work, and all the supposed team just comes to you for everything. Like, Screw you, assholes. Oh, I hate going oh, to my take, you guys are going to love this show if you're first-time listeners. We always begin like this. Um, <laughs> no, my take on this is that I'm sitting there. This is before I, I had this done. And I see this one's out. I'm working half a day. I'm working from home. I'm working from home. I'm like, I can't work from home because they never set me up. They, I used to, but now I can't. And I can, but my boss uh, won't let me anymore. So <laughs> you like that one. Yeah. So... <laughs> You know, and these people are taking off left and right, but who's always there? Me. Yep. Unlike the yep. guy that, you know, partners in the firm, they see I'm there, you know? 
Well, I'm taking off two days because I'm having the cast off, but I don't want to go running around the first day without it on. I just want to, like, let it heal. And yeah. I got this bullshit email response, and I didn't respond to it because I was kind of seething. You know what seething's yes. like? Yes, I do. Trust and me, you I can know. Say, every day. In a moment like that, I'm walking around with this thing, I'm blimping, and in a moment like that, I'm like, yeah, I feel like saying, fuck you, I quit. Yeah. I'm really? very close to saying, fuck you, I quit. Anyway. But, <laughs> uh, yep, that's been uh, me. <laughs> that's been you. See, we're on the same thing here. So, well, thankfully, not yeah. entirely because I, you know, knock on wood, have not broken anything. It's just dealing with the same kind of assholes and the same kind of situations. I don't, you know, like I said, it's corporate America. It just blows. So. Corporate America changed because it used to be adaptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like you and me, you know, it used to be adaptable. Corporate America, we could still play a role, play a, play along, play the game a little bit get things done and still not feel like we were prostituting ourselves too much. Yes, exactly. But now with the penny pinching and the and the blatant disregard for the workforce mm-hmm. that's actually doing things, it's like Welcome to the you world of at will employment and yes. <laughs> you know, yes. non-union, oh. uh, all, all this Republican shit that they pushed through over the last you know, many years, like the objectivist crap they always yell and, oh, yes, I'll, I will negotiate for a rate that I feel is fair. Yeah, and you'll be out on the street. You'll get what they fucking give you, and it's going to suck, and they're going to demand more from you every week than what you were getting before. It's just a nightmare. I was totally shocked when I read those words at will. Yeah. You have a 42-page document you have to sign, and at the last page it's like, but you're at will, which means this is all void. You're a jerk anyway. <laughs> I love that because when I first saw it, I'm like, what the hell does that mean? You're free to quit at any time. Well, yeah, I always was. That was always the case. <laughs> you're just saying you can fire me at any time. So, okay, thanks That's a lot. That's what that Fuck means. You. They're free to fire you at any time, and you sign the document. Yeah. Exactly. So, anyway. Yeah. Sorry to hear anyway. you're uh, in a worse boat at the moment, but hopefully it'll be better by after well, Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's going. Thank God I don't have any concerts this week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would laugh yeah. that off. I can tell how much concert tickets cost nowadays, and you know, <laughs> make your working a day just to pay for the fucking things, maybe more. So anyway, oh yeah, well, three days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, three. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Toby Hooper. We're here talking about Toby Hooper. I've, I've heard it mispronounced sometimes as Tubi. No, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, there was probably some audio commentary guy I heard one time. I almost spit out my fucking drink. <laughs> yes, we're here talking about the films of Tubi Hooper. Yes. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to get <laughs> another disc with you on the audio commentary. Um... Uh, he's a really fascinating character. Uh, he's actually older than I thought he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in his mid-70s, um, which explains doing a little, not too much, but a little research on him. And, you know, he was like, he was teaching college. He was a professor, yes. where, you know, back in, um, before Texas Chainsaw. So he wasn't some, uh, unbeknownst to me, he wasn't some high school graduate kid. Yeah, I was young, but uh, 
I think when he made Texas Chainsaw, he, he had to be about 30 years old almost, 29. Yeah, so that all that makes sense. All that makes sense. You know, he did the, like, college teachers and professors do. You know, he made a lot of short films. So I think some of them um, turned up uh, maybe later on. And uh, and I see one of his shorts was almost considered for an Oscar. I'm not quite sure what that means. I just think it was that. Happy, happy thinking. Uh, looked like it wasn't finished in time or something. I'm not quite sure. It's either it is or it isn't. So, uh, but uh, we're here to talk about genre films primarily. And yeah. uh, do you want to continue from here? Well, like you said, basically he was a college professor and he was doing, you know, like you said, doing film sort of things, documentaries. Uh, you know, he was a. I think he was actually more in line with cinematography than actually direction originally, um, which may or may not explain how things went afterwards. I don't think of his films as particularly cinematic, but there are instances that you could think that. Uh, Certainly his first notable film is um, Hitchcockian in its power to suggest things that aren't really going on on screen, and uh, that's what really freaked out the audience at the time. Uh, So... Basically, after you had mentioned this, like, 69, he had done this, uh, something called Eggshells. I have no idea what the hell that is. Uh, but his first real movie that anybody knew anything about was 74, which is, you know, I guess it was around the time. It was a little earlier than I spit on your grave. It was one of the most infamous films of its time, and it was before um, the Finleys did uh, Snuff. Uh, it was, like I said, I think it was before uh, I spit on your grave. There was a couple of really uh, infamous nasties that came out in the 70s, especially the mid-70s. Uh, what was the one with uh, William uh, Sanderson? Um, Fight for Your Life, that was 76. Oh, yes. uh, right. It kind of predated a lot of things. I think Last House on the Left was like 76. Um, so it almost – you could accuse it of kicking the stuff off. I don't know that it did. But it certainly had a, a lurid, surprisingly effective ad campaign, a minimalist ad campaign, uh, where they were – I think it was one of the first times they did that where they kept saying, like, oh, we can't show you what's going to happen on screen, but, you know, whatever. Um, and it would play not just you know on radio ads and on television, uh, usually late night TV or whatever, but they had these – they said these things, as you probably know very well, outside of Grindhouse Theaters in New York, and they would run ads like all the time. Uh, and this was one of those ones that would run a lot. Um, and the idea was just, like I said, it was kind of like psycho in a lot of ways. And uh, just jumping ahead to what I was saying before, uh, the idea is that it had done so well. This little, you know, out of nowhere indie film by some Texan professor uh, made so much money. I don't know for him or just for the distributors or what. Uh, it became like a cost celeb. It was infamous and notorious. Uh, it was kind of up there with. Uh, the furor that was happening around the same time about Deep Throat and um, uh, Behind the Green Door and all that kind of stuff. Uh, 
everybody was kind of talking about it for good or for bad. And usually, you know, they were concerned about it, obviously, uh, going on about how violent it is and how bloody it is and whatever. I even remember my folks, well, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't want to see that piece of shit. You know, it's so, like, bloody and whatever. And then I finally saw it. I'm like, there's, like, no blood in it whatsoever. Uh, well, there so, is, no, there is some. There is some. Yeah, I, it's like I think, I think, I I think a lot had to, you know, this is at that time period where things fell into place in a particular manner and way. This is the 70s, a time that will never be repeated again, um, yes. unfortunately, um, and the early 70s as well. And, and this was a, one of those instances where things, you know, I think, I believe he shopped this around, and, you know, the, the interest in the movie uh, as far as the distributor was kind of petering out, and um, Bryanston, which was a, a small distributor, they pretty much <laughs> did exploitation, it, shoddy, and on the edge of porn stuff. It was an infamous, were, infamous company. Yeah. Uh, actually, another one you should listen to, when I mentioned about the Nico Mastarakis interview, he talks about his dealings with... Uh, Butch Pereira and uh, or Pereira, however I would say it, and Bryanston. Uh, it, I don't want to get too much into detail, but let's just say uh, it's like Sopranos territory. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Bryanston, sure, sure. Yeah. And, and and Bryanston was everybody thought was a regional, you know, like uh, the Midwest or the South, a regional uh, distributor based out of there. But they actually were more down toward our way, yep. East Coast, and. The funny thing was, um, they were a small distributor. They knew how to market the hell out of this thing. And, you know, sort of like the distribution for the Evil Dead when that movie first came out. It was also, yes. everybody forgets, it was also handed by an indie. And it was also very, very well done as far as distribution and advertising. I mean, you were scared before you got in the theater. Yep. You were, oh, no, let me put it this way. You were apprehensive before you yep. got in the theater. You were like, what am I going to see? This is going to be yep. too much for me. I mean, you might laugh at that comment, but it's true. The way these guys, they did audio uh, on the radio. They did audio mm -hmm. um, commercials, if you remember. It was yep. intense screaming, and it was like, you know, the typical, what you are about to witness for the next... 90 minutes. Yeah, you know, like, holy shit. You know, what is this? I don't, I'm not sure I want to see this, man. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yep. And that works. That works. And you're right. It is, for the most part, fairly bloodless, but it's feral filmmaking. It's it's raw. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's, it's, um, it's raw. It's, yeah, feral. It's also... Very dark and twisty. And, you know, this is one of those movies. Um, it's been done before this, but this is probably the, the cream of the crop of the beginning of the, if you go to vacation, don't go here kind of movie. Uh, I don't know what, what, what that subculture, what that subgenre would be called. Uh, it was done very well in... Um, that movie with Kurt Russell and uh, the breakdown. Guy takes a vacation with his uh, wife, and uh, it's more of a mainstream almost movie. Uh, she gets kidnapped by these guys who who 
deal in slavery and, and rape, and it's very, very. That's a later picture, but this is like one of the early, you know, precedent movies. You know, there were a lot after this, and there were some yeah. that were really, really, really grungy. And uh, what I'm thinking dark. actually is the yes. ad. You know, talking about the radio ads. Uh, they had something very similar later on for Campbell Ferox, trap them and kill them. Uh, I mean, if you hear the audio ads, it actually does exactly what you're saying. It kind of sets the edge. You see, like, what the hell am I going to see? Is this going to be too intense for me to go see? And then, of course, you know, it is what it is. Uh, But in this case, it was more suggestion. Like I said, that's why I mentioned Psycho. Uh, It had a lot of... Uh, intense. First off, it was more in line with like an SOV film or amateur porn or that kind of aesthetic because it was so grungy and low rent. Uh, it just looks like uh, real life documentary footage or you know a student film. Um, the cast, especially at the time, was complete no names. I mean, yeah, you know, people mentioned Marilyn Burns. She popped up in a couple things later, uh, and Gunnar Hansen obviously kept doing this until he died in one form or another. Even working uh, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers with um, uh, Fred and Ray, uh, he was milking us for like twenty years. But um, the idea here was it looked like it didn't look like a professional film. It looked like somebody had you know found footage. It had that kind of aesthetic and that kind of feel yeah, to it. Yeah. Um, then they open it up, and there's a very dry commentator saying in 1963 in uh, Lubbock, Texas, you know, whatever. Uh, and it's rattling off all these you know, true facts about the Gein case. Uh, and then it right. cuts short, and there's – I don't believe there's any music, at least at that point in the film, if not ever in the film. Uh, that was another thing. I don't remember a soundtrack. Um, it was very quiet, very dusty, and here's these kids going down the road, you know, basically hippie types in their van, so, you know, half the audience was probably that way anyway, that that's who went to see this thing, uh, and if not, then, you know, they were older and they had kids or nephews who were that crowd, uh, and here they are, and first, you know, they're just going along, and free love, and back in the days of hitchhiking and all that jazz, and you pick people up, hey man, go and hey Ashbury, okay dude, let's get a couple states away, come on, hop in, hey, want to join, you know, they pass back and forth and whatever, you know, if it's a girl, she get laid in the back for the ride, you know, that kind of stuff was going on all the time, it wasn't like nowadays where everybody's paranoid, uh, but they end up picking up the wrong kind of guy. And this guy is like a backwoods cracker who ends up just being totally fucking nuts. I forget, did he cut off his own finger or somebody else's finger when he was digging in with that bad paring knife? Um, I think he, I think he cut them. I don't think he cut it off. I think he cut. Them. Yeah, but it was deep. It was a deep cut. Uh, so basically, they end up shoving him out of the van and whatever. But then, you know, while they're trying to get away from him, one thing after another happens, and they start running into various relatives, and the van breaks down, and you know the one guy's in a wheelchair of all things. So here they are, like wheeling this guy around through these backwoods of Texas, and we're talking about like total deliverance country. Um, and you know, it really gets worse and worse and worse and worse until the point where you know the the final horror, if you will, and they see, or should I say, the final girl uh, sees the inside of this mass murderer's house and his insane family. Uh, and you know, the big thing was that it was based on Ed Gein. Yes, Ed Gein was a weirdo. Uh, you know, he used uh, he made human skin lamps and shit like that, which is part of the film. 
Uh, he was a mass murderer, obviously, but he preyed on a certain kind of person. I forget whether it was widows or children or whatever. Um, he lived with his mother, but he didn't really have, or at least you know, maybe his dead mother by that point. Uh, he didn't really have this kind of thing of the extended family. So a lot of this was fictional and taken a lot further than the events really went. Not the events weren't horrible, uh, but that it, it made them very fictionalized and very over the top. Uh, but well, yeah, so yeah, go ahead. Well, well, I think you know one of the key things you just said, uh, deliverance. You know, that's what year is that? Seventy-four, sixty-nine. I thought it was before deliverance, wasn't it? What, what year was deliverance? No, wasn't I think it? deliverance is before this. Was the first okay. and 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 yeah, you know, that that's and yeah, you know, I completely forgot about the hula. <laughs> that's a that's a, like. A, Crazy fucking movie. I mean, you know, and a mainstream um, movie, <laughs> and a mainstream movie. What's probably the and it's funny. John Borman doesn't make movies like that. Pretty much, no. he just every movie he makes is different. I like that's yes. probably why he's liked. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, as opposed to like a Ken Russell. You know, we we bandied about a Ken Russell show one time. Maybe we'll get to it, but. But you know, like John Borman, every movie he made was pretty much different. And yeah. you look at Deliverance, and it was like so damn dark for its time. Oh, yeah. and extremely. And it, and and there's shit in Deliverance that is kind of ported over into this in terms of ambiance. Yes. And 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 I'm sure that was something that was kept in the. I'm sure they were thinking of that movie too. You know, you don't know these people. You know, and the other thing is, too, to, truth to be told, a lot of shit happens out there. Um, oh, yeah. I just, today in Yahoo News, uh, two fucking blowheads from father and son duo from Toledo, which is not in the middle of nowhere, for Christ's sake. Yeah. I chained up the guy's stepdaughter, 13 years old. They didn't say whether she was repeatedly <clears throat> abused, but she managed to get away. And they chained her up for like years. I, I wow. don't know what they were thinking. And, and this is in the middle of. Yeah. Well, wow. it's kind of a it's fact that people man. get more rotten. I mean, you just look at the kids nowadays, and they're doing psychotic shit. Yeah. Like, really? This, this is, is what you're gonna do for fun? Too. Yeah. But yeah. So. But the thing is, the thing I wanted to touch upon though, you you get in the middle of nowhere territory. Yep. Where people are, mm, I wouldn't say impoverished, there's gas, there's food, but they get kind of, like I said before, feral. Y'all, they yes. just kind of, that's the world that's to them, inbreeding, just, yep. you know, uh, you guys want a good taste of that? There's a great, one of the best of the X-Files episode, it's called Home, probably <laughs> one of the three best X-Files episodes ever, Uh which really touched upon that kind of thing there. It's a very weird, isolated, and insular kind of thing that goes on there. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, touches on things before it, and it was like the cornerstone, the touchstone, rather, for things that happened after, movies that happened after. People took yeah. little bits and pieces. 
you actually brought no. a good point up there because what you were talking about is something that I mentioned a lot with 70s film because the hippies in the 60s, especially since they had that whole go west thing before that became a gay thing, you know, like, oh, go west, young man, go west. Uh, it was, you know, go to San Francisco and wear some flowers in here and all that shit. Everybody's heading out to hate Ashbury. It was the big, you know, hippie communes and free love. And, you know, you got the diggers out there and, you know, you get fed and everything was supposed to be so wonderful. And of course, it wasn't. But, you know, that was the idea. So people, you know, teenagers from all over the country were just, you know, hitching a ride or, you know, doing what they could to get across country to go and, you know, yeah. see what this was. And there was a concomitant move towards, um, you know, you find it with like the birds where they kind of went country after a while. There, there was this thing, and of course the folk movement, uh, there's this thing about finding America. I want to find the real America. This is our country. I want to, you know, this is your land, our land, all crap. So all these hippies who are basically from the coasts, uh, and therefore more eh, gentrified, you know, city, you know, whatever. Uh, they're used to people being, I hate to say civilized, but you know what I mean. Uh, and they would go out to the Midwest, and they would go down below the Mason-Dixon line, and they would discover that, number one, all these you know crackers and shit didn't like their politics and their long, faggot hair and all that shit. I don't like the way you dress. I don't like you smoking drugs. You know, We don't smoke no marijuana in Muskogee and all that shit. Um, and... Basically, they had a lot of, you know, to use the phrase, they had a bum trip, uh, and this really scarred uh, the hippie movement. It scarred the country, in fact, uh, because all these people that grew up then became the you know adults and trendsetters and movie makers and music makers and whatever else of the you know, 70s and into the 80s. And throughout the 70s, especially in horror films, you will see so many instances that are direct – or, you know, flitting about with it, but you can tell what's going on, that are about the horrors of what America's really like, how there really is no promised land, and how basically once you get outside your, quote, safe zone, once you leave your little safe, you know, uh, not gated community, but, you know, where people you know and you know how people react, you're in trouble, and you better get the fuck out of there fast. It's not a good move to do. Uh, that's why you had a lot of, actually, the satanic movies that came out during the 80s, uh, 70s, rather. You know, everything from, like, you know, Brotherhood of Satan and the Devil's Reign to, you know, what, what was the Peter Fonda one? Um, Race oh, with that's the Devil. Race with the Devil. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's so many of these things. You, you can pick them by the dozen. They don't have to be horror films, and they don't have to be involving Satanism, but the idea was always the same, that, you know, going out to the, find the country, and you don't want to find the country because they're not like us, quote-unquote. Uh, so well, that's that was here too in this movie. Well, you know, you know, you know, Easy Rider, Easy Rider. Yes, yes, Easy Rider for sure. Well, that's that's a, yeah, that's another great example. The whole thing, what you were just speaking about, Easy Rider is a great example of that because the way that movie ends, you know, mm-hmm. it, you can't um, fight the system. They're trying to. Even Jack Nicholson, who was inside the system of fighting it like a civil rights lawyer type, you know, he's still crushed by it. He still gets killed by the, you know, beat to death basically by these crackers. Uh, they don't like his kind. They don't like the, the kind he hangs with. You know, it's it, again, they're chasing, okay, it's a little bit odd and dystopian because of Dennis Hopper's character. You know, basically he's trying to go and sell enough drugs that he can go and, you know, move to Mexico or whatever the hell and, like, live the, the high life. Uh, but. The idea of it was still hippies chasing after a dream, and then that's why you get Peter Fonda saying at one point, he's like, yeah, man, we, we did it. He's like, no, man, we blew it. We blew it. 
That's what it's about. The hippie thing. They're saying we were trying to find something different. We were trying to make a new America, basically. We were trying to make a better world, and well, we really fucked it up. <laughs> it didn't happen. You know, that's not the way it is. Uh, that movie, I love that movie. It's a lot deeper than people give it credit for. Uh, and just oh yeah, sure. All, all you need to do is sit there and watch the speeches with Jack Nicholson, as stoned as they all were at the time. Uh, and it's just like wow, you know, you, these people see you're free, and they don't like that because they're not free themselves, and they they're going to do anything they can to go and basically you know kill you off, make sure that they don't have that rubbing in their face that they're not free. Uh, this is true. Well, this is psychology. This is how people are. It's true, right? It's, it's psychology, yes. And that's part of the thing, I think, that, you know, everybody's got one brilliant film in them. Right? But that was his. That was Toby Hooper's. I mean, there was yep. a lot going on in this. It's it's more than just what it looks like. Uh, he was yes. tapping into all this stuff. Um, again, you know, what we were to, uh, you know, somebody should send Toby Hooper a copy of this damn thing. <laughs> but but uh, but now he was tapping into all this stuff, and uh, um, that's what it speaks about. You know, the the people, yes, they're 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 cannibals and they're inbred and all this other shit going on. But that's their life, and they're used right. to their life, and to them that's normal. So yeah. here are these kids who represent everything else and to them it's not normal to them it's just oh it's a it's a good excuse because not only are these people the family in quotations disgusted by them they they're not out to kill them and, and do torture to them because they're kids but because they're different right and it, there's a lot you know under 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 uh is there, there's great stuff in this. I mean, you talk about, you mentioned before, bloodless and, and ferocious. You know, a door, that huge door being slammed open, somebody being dragged inside, and a door being slammed shut so quickly, you could barely yep. register what happens. And that's that's scary. Yep, and you know don't that? forget, you just tapped into something else when you specifically mentioned the family. You didn't mean it that way. But I also realized he was talking about Manson as well, because this was post-Manson. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here, and you know, not just Hooper. It's not like it was the only film that was saying these kind of things. There was hundreds of them, like I pointed out. Uh, but it was not only extremely effective on those levels and on a pure filmmaking level, but it was it. It's still disturbing to this day. I don't enjoy watching the film. It's not one I say, oh yeah, let's pull up the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like, yeah, well, I've seen it. You know, I may see it again in ten years, just to you know re- revisit and revise my opinions or whatever. But that's kind of it. Uh, whereas other things like slasher films, wherever the fuck, or you know, all these Italian horrors, I watch them constantly. It doesn't mean nothing to me. They're fun. There's nothing fun about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre unless you really got some problems. It's a very dark film and very grim and very unsettling, and it's so. In your face, again, going back to the SLV thing, you can't escape from it. You can't sit back and say, this is fantasy. This is, there's distancing. There's no distance there. It's, it's the thing that I don't like about modern horror films. There's no space for you to sit back and say, ah, you know, this is fake, whatever, who cares? It's very much in your face. It, it's realistic feeling. Uh, it's, um, you know, you just seen with like grandpa there with the, the hammer trying to like, you know, get her in the bucket and smack her head open. I mean, it, it's just... It's disturbing as shit, and there's no two ways about it. So I do not like the film at all. It's not a film I say, oh, here's a great film. Let's go and talk about this one. It's more like, 
yeah, well, it needs to be discussed. Uh, it certainly was uh, a trend-setting film in certain ways. You know, a lot of people copycatted it. Uh, he certainly knew what he was saying. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of depth to it, but it's not a film that I really care to celebrate. It's just like it exists, you know, it, and it, it needs to be talked about in the course of a discussion of Toby Hooper or films of the 70s or whatever else, uh, horror films that are, you know, disturbing as shit, but it's not a film that I like at all, so – uh, anything else well, you wanted to say on this one? Okay. Before we before we leave Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just to say how anybody tries to remake this film, and we'll discuss his own remake later. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was you know par- porn parodies are very popular right now. Uh, I actually saw was it you? Somebody posted. I don't know somebody else maybe. Was oh, it Doctor Who? One? The Doctor Who. Yeah. That was me. <laughs> oh, that was you. It actually looked pretty good. I might want to check that one out. But I thought so. I was like, that's great. <laughs> it does look pretty good, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, well, they're getting better, and they people, you know, they're finding people who actually can act and look the part. So, yeah, everything else we'll see. But what <laughs> I was trying to say was um, there was one from 96, I believe. It was a porn parody of this, <laughs> over two hours long. How could you parody this? Here's the thing. It was one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. And nobody writes about this movie. I, I brought it up <laughs> into two articles I had written uh, with a, for a magazine maybe a year or two ago when I was writing about some satanic uh, X-rated films. Mm-hmm. And I brought up this movie. Um, this porn parody of Texas Chainsaw, which is frightening. And, uh, yeah, I think it's 96 or 97, and it's just, how can these two things be married? Yeah, exactly. To work, and, um, but they're still at it. Well, they were still at it, and, uh, it's like, it's like this movie. I would never watch that again. I can't believe I sat through it once. I might have fast forwarded through (laughs) most of it. This is a lot for the impresario of sleaze, but uh, <laughs> but there's still it's still an influence even in this day and age. Yeah. Now he followed it up with a with a strange movie uh, three years oh. later, I think. I'll say this: um, what I this one here, unlike Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is disturbing. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I had written something earlier that I didn't even catch a note I made myself that saying that it was like Black Christmas and the fact that it's another very early precursor to the slasher film craze. And I mentioned Halloween in that case. Like Halloween, it wasn't much actual grew. It's more suggestive. Right. Uh, but it's very hard to watch, like Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, which we mentioned. Uh, but this one here, Eaten Alive, I actually like. Um, it's very atmospheric. Uh, it's got like a swamp setting, and there's a lot of – what do you want to call that? It's like swamp fog, you know, like the mist going around the whole time. Um, there's a rotten out uh, – and you can see like the floors are rotten and everything else. Uh, a hotel basically in the middle of the swamp. Uh, the visual aesthetic is really idiosyncratic and strange. He likes to do a lot of Dutch angles and things like that, uh, You know, basically yeah. showing you know, everything's off, off kilter. Uh, it's definitely another part of this rural horror thing that I was mentioning. Uh, you know, 
the, the only thing I said about it was, who the hell would want to stay in this hotel? Neville Brand, who was in a lot of stuff at that time. I remember seeing him recently in, uh, I think it was The Police Connection, uh, one of those Code Red jobs. He was always oh, yeah. entertaining. And what was it, like the... He did one where he was kidnapping a plane. It wasn't the kidnapping of the president, but uh, they had hijacked an airliner. I think it was another Code Red that was a couple months back. Uh, his films were usually entertaining, even though he was always the baddie or the bit player or whatever. Uh, Mel Ferrer's in the damn thing. Uh, you can tell that he's got a much more established cast here. Carolyn Jones, uh, friggin' uh, Marcia Queen of Diamonds and Morticia Adams. Uh, Marilyn Burns pops up again. Um, who else? Stuart Whitman's in this one. He's the sheriff. Uh, Roberta Collins, who was a, um, a Corman uh, Women in Prison film regular. And of all people, Robert England, the future Freddy Krueger, is in this as well. Um, right. You know, basically it's about this cracker who's feeding hotel residents that piss him off, really. Uh, it, it wasn't just like, oh, here in a hotel, I'm going to kill you. It was, you know, you get obnoxious, like... Um, I don't know, you know, New York, but touristy types, you know, it's like overweight guys with yeah. like, uh, you know, Hawaiian shirts and the flip flops and the socks and all this, being all bossy and obnoxious to some stranger. And he's like, ah, oh, well, screw you. And he goes, and throws some pizza to his alligator. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot more interesting visually because of what's going on on screen, the way it's set up, the way it's filmed, uh, than the script would suggest. So I actually enjoy this one. It's it's a much more, you know, after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you want to use the word safe, but it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more typical of not even a slasher film. It's got more of a, uh, a silly aesthetic to it. I enjoyed the hell out of it, but it was very quirky. And there's, there's a comedy involved in it as well, so you can picture that. So uh, go ahead. What do you want to say about this one? Uh, it's, yeah, quirky. Quirky's, it's, it's black comedy. That, that's, yes. That's, and like like the previous picture, I also saw this in the theater. I saw Texas Chainsaw in the theater. Uh, maybe one of its re-releases, like 76, 77. I saw it Eat Alive when it was fresh in the theater. Yeah, it's a weird, quirky little movie. Um, strange cast. Uh, Neville Bram was writing hot at that moment. Uh, he's, a, he's a hard guy to peg because he did play, I think it was part American Indian. So he played these gravelly voiced, uh, looked like he was seething of alcohol. I don't know if he actually drank or maybe that was just the impression we always got from him. Well, he was uh, part Native American, like you said. So, and you yeah. know, not to be stereotypical, but everybody knows what goes on the reservation. So it's very possible he's, he was a hard-living, hard-drinking guy. So Yeah, but he had a certain way about him, almost like, it's interesting, you know. Um, he, he, did, he did lots of low-budget movies, very rarely yep. in something uh, A-listing. But uh, when he was, it was pretty much a very, very minor part. So it was like almost a starring role for him. Um, I have no idea how in the world, though, Toby Hooper got his next assignment after making this picture, which is pretty damn strange. <laughs> that is true. So um, after doing those two films, so you've got one of the most notorious films of the entire decade – and you've got this bizarre um, 
again, still working in this backwards cracker sort of a milieu, just you know lighter hearted and with bigger actors. So all of a sudden he winds up doing a TV miniseries and a good one, uh, Salem's Lot, yeah. uh, which yeah. I still enjoy to this day. It's one of the better uh, TV miniseries, along with something like say Shogun. Uh, it's not as good as Shogun, but it's it's a damn good thing. And for Stephen King, I mean, there has never been a good Stephen King where I know Rest is the Shining. I didn't even like that fucking thing. Well, uh, basically, this is one of the one or two things that was made from Stephen King that actually fucking works. And it may be the only one because uh, the other one I'm thinking that I actually enjoy, even though it was crappy, was the Langoliers. <laughs> I just enjoy seeing those things eat up the airport and everything. And uh, that loser Bronson Pinchot trying to act. But you know, in terms of okay. Yeah, this is actually something good you would show to other people. Selms lots it. That's the only one. Um, basically, he got uh, Reggie Nalder, who was a was he World War One? I? I think he's a World War One uh, veteran, and he had gotten basically scarred, you know, part of his face blown off or something. So he would he had this character, if you will, uh, didn't speak English very well. And he pops up in this, and he popped up in a lot of you know mainstream sort of things in bit parts, you know, usually as a sinister exotic. Uh, and then he starts popping up in pornos. I know he was in Dracula Sucks, and I know he was in what was that crappy one that we reviewed recently for uh, with Helga Sven? You, you remember? I, it was like a month or two back from Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, uh, maybe it was Blue Ice. Yeah, it might have Blue Ice. Yeah. Uh, so for some reason he had this sideline working in porno movies too. I don't know why. He wasn't acting. He was just sitting there like, you know, doing a couple of lines and ha 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 and smile and watch people screw. And that was the end of it. Uh, thank God. You didn't want to see this guy naked. But, uh, he was the vampire in this thing. And who is in this? James friggin' Mason. I don't like him, but it's a big name. Uh, Bonnie Bedelia, another annoying, you know, character actress of the era, but she was kind of a big name at the time. Uh, Lou Ayers. Uh, who another character I could people would know going back to the 40s and 50s. Alicia Cook Jr., same idea. He popped up in stuff like you know, House on Haunted Hill. And who's the lead? David Soul, friggin' Starsky and Hutch. And, you know, don't give up on us, baby. He had a singing career, too. Uh, somewhere in my collection, I actually have the David Soul album. I found it at a flea market for like a quarter or something in the garage, so uh, <laughs> had to get it for the laugh. But the damn thing is actually one of the scariest things filmed for television that wasn't Dan Curtis produced. Uh, there are moments in this, like when the kid's floating outside his friend's window trying to get inside, uh, and then there's a few like jump scares with Barlow the Vampire that just, to this day, you know, I've seen it maybe two or three times, but you know, having seen this as a kid originally still stand out in my memory. Now, I will say this. I despise Stephen King as a writer and his films even more so if that wasn't already apparent. Uh, but this one here, and like I mentioned, you know, the, the kind of quirkiness of Langoliers, which is just funny, uh, hold up among what I consider to be a filmography and authorship of complete shit. So it's saying something that I actually really do like Salem's lot. And uh, maybe a lot of that is down to Toby Hooper's direction. I don't know, but it works. So your turn. Well, actually, you know, you know what's funny is that David Soul is actually quite good in this, mm-hmm. and and possibly the best thing we've ever seen David Soul in, and the best thing David <laughs> Soul's ever done. Yep, in terms of acting that I've seen him in, to be fair to sure. Um, uh. James Mason, yeah, I read the book too, and James Mason, it was cool to see James Mason, um, 
interesting choice. And playing uh, evil, which he usually doesn't do. So. No, 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 which he usually doesn't do. And then uh, Reggie Nolder and that crazy makeup, uh, which is not how I would expect to visualize that character. I think they were going with Nosferatu, the uh, the Murnau. Yes, yes, of course, yeah. But um, probably because the Kinski one was really popular like a year yes. before or two years before. Um, so, uh, that being said, it's really good, it's really effective, it's really, it's really creepy, and it's probably, you know, we, we did a show, uh, talking about the Night Stalker films, uh, mentioned the series, we did the Dan Curtis, uh, show, it's definitely up there with one of the best yeah. horror films made for TV, American television. Definitely. And I had mentioned that as well, that the Dan Curtis ones with Richard Matheson and all that were pretty much the top, but this was right there. I mean, and it's written by fucking Stephen King, which is mind-boggling because he sucks. So, it says something. Well, uh, my, my issue, I, I, I used to read, when I was younger, not too much younger, but when I was a little younger, I used to uh, read a lot of Stephen King. I, you know, I liked to stand before they added like 5,000 more pages. My <laughs> issue with Stephen King was I got, as I got a little older I stopped I started to stop reading him because I found him very descriptive of things like he would do stuff like here's and I love Maine actually it was one of my favorite vacation places so you know I like that kind of connection but King can be guilty of doing things like Tommy sat on the chair the chair was made by Joe Smith of the Kentucky chair making factory in the wood yes. shop by his mother. We go into fifty two pages about the chair. Yeah. And you know he he doesn't know how to edit himself and nobody would dare edit Stephen King. <laughs> and uh he gets paid the by the word. He's actually one of those guys that he actually says it as like part of his like writing advice. Uh you know, everybody just writes something, even if it's complete shit. You know, don't don't worry about whether you're inspired or whether you got anything to say. So he just like types it out like a uh, a pulp fiction hack, you know, like back in the old days when they used to have the, the penny dreadfuls where they used to Varney the vampire and it's totally padded. Uh that's that's what he does. He pads his stuff. And unfortunately, well, I like, Yeah, I did like the shining though. I did like the shining, I have to say that. Besides the what you're mentioning about this over descriptiveness, because you know you can uh, not to the same extent, but you could blame like Anne Rice for being overly florid as well. But I liked her style. Uh, King really likes fucking Hicks, and everything is about all these crackers and their like shitty little lives and their personality. So he builds entire. He's growing up in a small town. Because he built entire small towns, basically, in every single book. So, you know, Zeke and Zeb and his wife, uh, Carolyn and you know, uh, Gertrude, and they're all going to have their interrelations or whatever. And, you know, in the middle of a book about, you know, something completely unrelated, like, you know, <laughs> monsters from space or some shit, you know, like the Tommyknockers or whatever, you can have this long thing about Zeke and his wife and how, you know, she's cheating on him with, you know, uh, Joshua down the street at the bar 
And oh, he finds it, and he's gonna blow her away with a shotgun, and you know, make stick it at this guy's ass, and then make, you know, make him beg for his life, and then pull the trigger anyway. And what, what the kind of shit is this? I don't need to read this. These people suck. You suck. You're a crappy writer. I don't know why everybody loves Stephen King. I don't understand it. I despise everything I've read from him. And I've read about yeah, maybe three or four books over my lifetime. Like, yeah, this guy just blows. And and, and the movies don't work either. I know everybody likes The Shining, like I said, and there are moments that are effective, probably most. Mostly down to Jack Nicholson's performance, and to some extent, the you know the creepy setting. You know, I'm, big, I'm not a huge Kubrick fan either, but you know, okay, he's a decent director for what he is, uh, artsy fartsy type director. But uh, you know, King just I don't know his material is always kind of bottom tier to me. You know, Maximum Overdrive, oh please, <laughs> Christine Cujo, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, but, <laughs> it doesn't work. But, but Salem was not as good. Oh, Salem's a lot I love. I mean, in terms of the uh, the uh, teleseries, anyway. I haven't read the book on this one, but um, so anyway, Salem's lot is good, and it got accolades deservedly. So, yes, um, people liked it. Surprisingly, the critics were surprised. I think that this Toby Hooper TV movie was actually that good. Miniseries was actually that good, um, which is a nice thing. Unfortunately, either went. Fucking nuts with the next picture, which I never liked. <laughs> yeah, um, well... Very strange movie. What he goes back to is now he's on his own again, so he makes a cross between uh, the past two movies he did, Forgetting Selm's Law, which is for television. So, on the one hand, it's got the weirdness of Eaten Alive, without the atmosphere so much. It's got a different kind of atmosphere, so I'll give it that. Uh, but the uncomfortableness of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So basically, uh, what works about it, let, let's, let's split it in half here. What works about the film, the creepy carny setting. Because you know, basically, you've got films that are set in the carnival you know, throughout history. Not a lot, but it's usually kind of effective, especially if you're talking about at night or after, you know, when nobody's around, you know, and this, everybody's kind of asleep or the carnies are just, you know, getting drunk or whatever the hell they do at night. Uh, it's an eerie, abandoned atmosphere that you aren't expecting to see in that light. Uh, plus, you know, it's a fly-by-night kind of a gypsy operation, so you never know what's gonna, where it's going to be the next day. And, you know, in, in a way, it becomes dangerous, if you will. Uh, it's not there all the time. It's not answerable to you. Uh, and, you know, like I said, there's a tremendous amount of atmosphere involved because of this. The problem is, and what doesn't work about this is you remember the movie The Unseen with uh, the guy uh, from the television version of Animal House as this oh, know, basically baby? Yeah. It's like an un- a unseen style thalidomide baby monster. Uh, and that's kind of what's going on here. And it gets uncomfortable. Once again, you sort of get into Stephen King territory because he's got, you know, the father or wherever the hell trying to hook him up with hookers. And of course, the hooker freaks out because she's, he's like a monster. Uh, it's just, I don't know. I mean, there are elements about it, you know, the atmosphere elements that work. There are some slasher ish elements about it that sort of work. But the conceit of it, that there is this, you know, monster child here going around and killing people because it's, you know, unhappy and unloved and, you know, the monster, it's just, I don't know, it's distasteful and it's uncomfortable and I do not enjoy it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I wouldn't put it down there with Texas Chainsaw Massacre in terms of being that uncomfortable because it's got elements that are, you know, I can deal with. But there definitely is, uh, it, there's an ick factor to it that's kind of strong. So, your turn. Well, 
I I just never liked this movie. I actually saw it once when it first came out in the theater, and then I saw it on video for reassessment, probably in the mid to late 80s, on VHS, and mm-hmm. I liked it even less. So, I mean, for all the things you touched upon, it's just, it's not a likable film, which, actually, we're not the only people to say. Yeah. I, I'm not sure who has, who's a fan of this movie in great great depth. Um, um, that being said... And he's got strange he's people this? in it. Sylvia Miles. Sylvia Miles. Lady. Yeah, Bill go. Finley. You're, you're, I know you're a big William Finley fan. He's in this damn thing. Um, you know, it's a, it's a strange movie. And like you had mentioned, I I remember Siskel and Ebert at the time going on about you know actually despising the film. Now that doesn't mean anything because they tend to be like hoity-toity, you know. Oh yes, I'm a proper critic, or whatever. But nonetheless, um, it shows that it was not well received uh, in many respects. I don't think it was well received by the slasher audience, and it certainly wasn't well received by the the mainstream and/or critical audience. And Kevin, Kevin Conway plays the father in this. And yeah. Kevin Conway had just come off a very well-received Blade of Heaven uh, for, for uh, uh, PBS, the Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he was like a theater actor. I guess he still was until his passing. And uh, I think he was... They cast him because it was like he became quickly, because of the lathe of having uh, a mini cult item, and uh, they probably put him in this, figuring he has some kind of credential. But, um, um, yeah, it's not a likable movie, it's not well liked. And yet, he works with Steven Spielberg next. Yes. So again, you've got the flip flop. Here he makes one well received but disturbing undergroundish type film, indie film. Then he makes one that I enjoy a lot, but it was not well received and odd. Then he makes a pretty mainstream and very well received, deservedly so, television miniseries. And then he makes this basically hated, you know, cheapo slasher film. So what does he do next? He makes a Big Hollywood CG blockbuster. How the fuck did he get that job? Uh, so anyway, it's oh so 80s, I wrote. It's oh so mainstream, safe, and proto-CG. It's one of these films where it's like, you, you can picture me on Lifetime. Oh, the children are endangered. It's a special effects popcorn movie. The only part that I really like about this movie to this day, and still like quarters a laugh, is when the daughter is out there and the construction workers are whistling at her, she's kind of hot, and she gives this elaborate, like, two-handed, like, fuck you, like a bird to them. <laughs> uh, I mean, that was, like, the best part of the movie. The rest of it sucks. Uh, but people love it. it. It's like an E.T. kind of a thing. Uh, they got the pitch man from friggin' Pathmark, the Pathmark ads, to be the bad guy. Oh, James, uh, James Karen, who was great yeah. in the movie we should talk about one day. Which one? The Return of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can talk about that if you want. Uh, Pooh Gulliger is fantastic in that. 
it's yeah, that was a strange movie. I have like pluses and minuses with it, but yeah, you're right. That was definitely a lot better than this one. Uh yeah. the thing about this film is it is so Spielberg. It's so safe. It's so Hallmark card. Uh and yet it's supposed to be a horror film and it's not. It's like pretty close to Ghostbusters without the laughs. Um <sighs> Basically, this family buys a house that's built on an Indian burial ground. End of story. Uh, they got haunted by you know, ghosts, and they got this little, little girl who ends up later on getting sick, and she kind of gets pudgy for those sequels before she dies. Uh, in real life, we're talking. And they have a midget psychic, uh, Zelda Rubenstein, who like built a eh, – not even really a career, but she kind of milked it for a couple of years uh, – Oh, look, it's the psychic from this thing. Sonny Landham's in it, who, as you had mentioned, had also done porn. But he was also known for being like a biker type, you know, an extra in, you know, like Braden Clark films, things like that. Uh, freaking Craig T. Nelson, coach, is the, the star of this movie. Yeah, that's a great choice. You know, old Balding coach. Uh, Joe Beth Williams, who is annoying as shit. Um, that's really well, it. Well, he had a thing for her for a brief period of time. I don't know why. Oh, man. What a. <laughs> I, you know, she's she, looking correct. She, she was a bitch. <laughs> yes, she did, but she was a bitch. I couldn't see her. Uh, but this movie is, it's the antithesis of everything I like about film. This is the kind of film where everybody gets all excited about, like, whatever, Jaws or, you know, Indiana Jones. Or, again, we're talking about all Spielberg films here, uh, where it's just like, oh, look, it's a great popcorn movie. Yeah, but it sucks. There's nothing about it that appeals to me in any respect. It's super safe. It's got, like, you know, big-name stars that can't act away over a fucking paper bag, and I don't want to see them because they're not even visually interesting. Uh, the script is boring. And it's just like, I don't know. You, you might as well have taken all that money he had and made five movies out of it with much more interesting, like, cult film directors than make this piece of shit. But, of course, it made a lot of money. Everybody loves this stuff. Now, this is what mainstream America wants. They want the schmaltz. You know, they want Taylor Swift albums. They want, you know, Kanye West albums. They want Hallmark cards. You know, this is what America, the middle America wants. And this is why I have no connection to that <laughs> section of culture. Because this is like, this stuff is crap to me. It's absolute dog shit. It's like anathema. You know, you think that some people say, okay, well, this would be heaven for me. Hell for me would be sitting there watching mainstream films and listening to pop radio all day long. That would literally be... You know, they, I'd be trying to slip my wrists all day long, and somehow, like, you know, de- demons be holding my hands back so I couldn't slip my wrists. You know, you have to watch. You have to leave your ears open. That's hell for me, watching Poltergeist all day long. So there you go. <laughs> we could t- tell you down like Alex in the Clockwork Orange. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, I don't hate this movie as much as you do. It's kind of hard uh, to I, do. I know – I. I know your feelings about Mr. Spielberg. Oh, and, uh, and I should say one other thing. Oh, I got go dragged ahead. to the theater to see this fucking thing. And we started singing the Pathmark song while the guy popped up and pissed everybody off in the theater. But yes, I got dragged to the theater for, by a friend to see this film when it came out. I'm like, wow, that film oh, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so it doubly sucks for me. It's like a bad memory and a bad film. So, good. so it, was, it wasn't like a date movie, huh? No. <laughs> I was too young Day for that. Movies have to be like Sydney Lumet movies that are really long. So you can um, <laughs> yeah, Harry Met uh, Sally. That's a date movie. That's not a date movie. Prince of the City, three and a half hours long. Nobody cares. It's the end of the day. <laughs> anyway, 
I don't hate it as much as you do. Which is um, hard to do. I actually like some of Mr. Spielberg's films. So, yeah. That makes um, one of us. <laughs> it makes one of us. Um, no, it, I think he's very talented, and there are times when the, I, I really say, that is a good fucking movie. But, um, it's funny, this picture, and this has come up before, how much of it was directed by Spielberg, who was just supposed to be producing, and how much of it was actually directed by Toby Hooper, and nobody, neither one of them has actually come clean all these years later. How many years later? It's just 82. Um, it's, it's been mentioned a lot because it doesn't really look like a Toby Hooper film. It's really not like any of the... I mean, it's got a glossy sheen to it. It's a big budget, but it doesn't really look like any Spielberg film. Yeah, but it's got like, the family dynamic and the, the kids. Remember, Spielberg is big on family. You see that in all of his films. There's some sort of a, a family dynamic that's usually it's like a broken family and then end up healing by the end. Again, Hallmark card shit. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But you got a little carried away there. I don't think that this is really – I see what you're saying, but I don't think in this particular instance it, it feels like a film from either one of them. So I think it's a big mystery who actually made this movie. And you know – it's quite possible that maybe there was a third party uh, brought in. I I like it though. I I for what it is. I I guess it has very very little rewatch value. It has some effective stuff. The separate of corpses pop up near the end is not one of them. Oh, yeah. It's very trite. Um, I kind of like the stuff where uh, the girls inside the TV, Caroline, stay away from the light. You know, a lot of these things became like catchphrases for America, you know? Yes. I mean, I'll, I'll be at work to this day. I'll like, stay away from the light and look at me. What are you talking about? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, um, it has a lot of famous catchphrases. Um, it's effective if you just shut your brain off and it is what What? That all being said... Movie, it's not really. It's very unusual if we're gonna say this is a Toby Hooper film, but <laughs> he totally surprised us after this one. Yeah. Um. So here we go, and basically he's doing. I hate to say a film every other year or maybe every two years. He took a couple years off. He came back in '85. Now, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna go on a record here. Maybe you'll agree, but nobody else will agree with either one of us. That I think this may be his best film for all its flaws. I love this film. Uh, it is an effective alien-style mystery, you know, being like the uh, really Scott Alien, uh, the original. Uh, it's like a mystery in space in the first third uh, that turns into a really apocalyptic, uh, almost last man on Earth. You know, there was some price thing that became, uh, you know, I Am Legend and all that later. Uh, scenario, the Omega Man. Uh, it's that kind of a scenario with this embattled London and a plague of effectively vampirism. Uh, and on top of all that, we get the very naked and quite shapely Matilda May, who was kind of an unknown French girl who had uh, no shame and uh, was happy to show off her really fantastic 
gas and boobs and bush, and she was just stunning. <laughs> so, you know, you add all that together. You've got the first half where it's like, these are really nice sets. This is pretty cool. It feels like the opening half of Alien or open third. And then all of a sudden it turns into this insanity where it's like, you know, end of the world uh, sort of like, oh, my God, this is like the you – know, what do you want to call it? Like revelations level because uh, it really gets widespread. This is much wider spread than most movies of its type that get apocalyptic like this. Uh, and then you've got you know her running around naked through the whole damn thing, and then it gets really subversive, and I'm sure we'll get to that soon. Uh, I love this fucking film, and you know for me, there's no question that even though I loved uh, Eaten Alive in certain respects, and even though I certainly loved Salem's Lot and still do, uh, I think this is his best. Um, most people will not say this though. Um, you got Steve Brails back is in the damn thing. He's you know, kind of an interesting character actor, pops up in a lot of odd things. Uh, Frank Finley, who you love, is back in this thing. Uh, I mentioned Matilda May. Patrick Stewart is in this thing, you know, well before he starts making that stupid Star Trek stuff uh, in the late 80s. I think he's around 89 when they did Next Generation. Um, and he has a really odd and what becomes subversive role later on. So did you want to kick off? Because I'm sure you have stuff to say about it before we get to the Patrick Stewart scene. I'm sure you know which one I mean. <laughs> Uh, well, um, I I really like this movie. Actually, a couple of weeks ago, I I actually uh, interviewed Stephen Rails back, and uh, actually was pretty well attended. Surprisingly well attended, actually. Um, packed room, uh, and I think a third of the interview uh, wound up discussing this movie, Life Force. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, hopefully, uh, the guy who shot it, my friend Phil, uh, put it up, uh, on YouTube soon. Um, yeah, we'll see that. this is a strange movie. This is done for Canon. It, it yes. has a huge budget for Canon. I mean, you and know we this. Mentioned, this is probably... In passing, we have mentioned this film during our Canon film show, yeah. so I can check this that out. This could be the most expensive Canon film of all time, uh, is that. Um... They had gigantic sets, gigantic, mm -hmm. and uh, Stephen Railsback mentioned that, and he said it was just amazing going to work every day, just like the scope of this stuff. Um, yeah, you know, he's an interesting actor. Um, he <sighs> did you he talk turkey shoot in... with him? <laughs> yes. Oh, you. Well, okay. I'm gonna digress for one moment. <laughs> I brought that movie up. And it right away changed the tone of everything for the rest of the, of the event. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, uh, he, he does not like that movie. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't blame him, probably. Kind of like talking uh, to Corlean Capella de Sony and bringing up Evil Clutch or Il Bosco. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great film. <laughs> what happened to her? She was, she was on the verge of doing stuff again. And then... The, I don't know. Just kind of drop back into indie land. I have no idea. <sighs> anyway, so I love this movie. I mean, first of all, it's uh, it's keyed in the color scheme of this film. It's like this cobalt blue, which is one of mm -hmm. my favorite colors. Yes. So right away, I'm like I'm attracted to it, and then it's. Um, it's kind of, well, something else you didn't mention 
was it's very Quatermassy at times. Yes, you know, you're right. And, and um, actually, especially Quatermass in the pit. Yes, yes, and the climax of Life Force really, really feels influenced by Quatermass in the pit. By it goes well beyond what was filmed previously, because the scope is yeah. tremendous on this film. You know, it's interesting you mentioned oh, that yeah. about the sets because the scope is really what catches you. Like, holy shit. They still haven't done something like this to this day. You know, films like, oh, look, it's the end of the world. And they're like really small scale. This is huge scale. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, matter of fact, the, we're going to talk about other things about this movie, but like the climax of this picture um, just has like all these people just being running rampant, rioting, and um, yep. under the influence of something. I don't, it's hard. I don't want to really spoil it. But, you know, I did read the Colin Wilson book, okay. Space Vampires. That's the, the actually cheesy title of the book. And um, I thought it was a quite good book. And then it led me to read a few more of his things, and neither yeah. of them is good as this. Colin but, Wilson is an oddball. I mean, he was known for conspiracy theories and his writings on occultism, uh, both of which were yeah. kind of spotty. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that he even wrote this thing says something right there. <laughs> but no, it was a good book, though. That was fine. Uh, but, you know, it's like, you know, everybody has, like, a couple of good books in them and then everything else, like James Herbert. I felt that about James Herbert, who uh, was a was an author I was championing for years. But then he started to really decline in quality um, True. And then you have Matilda May, um, who appeared in a couple of French art type movies. And yeah. actually, I get the impression she was like a couple of French. Yeah. I get the impression she was like a low rent Emmanuel Bayard. Same idea. Again, another one I was unafraid yeah. to take my clothes off and prance about. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had Israel's back about, you know, I forgot how I phrased it. I said, how was it to work? With her, because you know, I, I did it very politely and carefully. Yeah. Stuff, because most of the time you're in the scenes with her and she's completely nude and uh-huh. smiling. Like, well, you know, she was a good actress and she had <laughs> to be to be focused, which was a good a good reply. And then he said sure. he had to be focused, of course. That's <laughs> an and. <laughs> He said, you know, with the, it's not always easy. Yeah. So we, you wanted to go with Patrick Stewart. Yeah, Where well, Patrick Stewart has an interesting role in the film. Uh, I, I can let you get into it more. But what really stands out for a lot of people, uh, and I remember I watched this. My father was a fan of this film as well, probably for the same reasons, because he was also a horned dog. Uh, but we were both like, Whoa, what the fuck just happened there? Uh, because at a certain point in the film, I forget whether uh, she had been refrozen and captured or if they had you know, killed her, destroyed her body, because obviously there's some space. They're vampires from space, effectively. Um, and she got inside. She was like jumping from mind to mind. And she got inside the head of Patrick Stewart, who was... I think he was a uh, he was either MI6 British intelligence or he was like the British PM. I forget which, uh, but he was like something in that. He may have been the PM because Peter Firth might have been the British intelligence guy. Right. 
Uh, I had that feeling, but I didn't want to say it and be totally dead wrong here. But yeah, so what happens is during one scene, she is talking to him in her voice, and he sees in his head her face. And she basically, you know, because he has fallen for her, he's, I think he was the first one to kiss her or something on the ship, something like that. They had touched when she was a desiccated you know, vampire corpse, effectively. Uh, so they have this connection throughout the film. And suddenly he sees her face and she's talking to him and basically comes on to him. He's like, oh, yeah, come with me, you know, we'll go to space, wherever the hell, you know, you want me, I want you, uh, you know, kiss me, you fool kind of a thing. And it keeps flipping back and forth between the picture of Matilda May and her voice and the picture of Patrick Stewart and his voice, and they wind up making out. So all of a sudden you're watching like, whoa, what the fuck is this? Here's Steve Reels back making out with Patrick Stewart. Like, okay there. And remember, this is 1985. This is not like, you know, Queer Eye from the Straight Guy or something like that or, you know, post-Roseanne. This is like... What the fuck is going on here? This is a mainstream film. Uh, very, very subversive. Very, I don't want to say ahead of its time, but very much pushing buttons. And, you know, you got to respect that. You got to respect that he was willing to go beyond established boundaries. Uh, whatever you feel about that in itself, because for us it was like, whoa, what the hell is this? Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, the fact that he didn't say, oh, well, we can't do this because, you know, people are going to get upset. It's like, nope, let's do it. Fuck it. And and they just went for it. And, you know, the two actors here, you know, as far as I know, neither one of them is in the least gay. Nonetheless, hey, fine, let's go for it. And you see this happening like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, even to this day, it's like, whoa, what's that? You weren't expecting it. But then it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it was um, boundary pushing to say the least. And you will find people that still you know, react to it to this day, and understandably so. So there you go. Uh, what did you want to say about Stewart and his role and everything else? Oh, uh, um, I think it was the first time I saw him without hair, because it was pre-Star uh, Trek, whatever right. that stupid Star Trek show was. Because oh, God, that piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. I had people try uh, to convert me to that show, and the only thing I liked about it was Dr. Crusher. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, I'm well aware of it. I think I, I was even dragged to one or two of the movies, but, you know, anyway, that's after this. So pre this, and I think we mentioned it on the Canon show, or I mentioned it on the Canon show, you know, I remember him from I, Claudius, where he had here. So it was, uh, it was uh, I liked him. I liked Frank Finley, because Frank was in a couple of... Uh, Good genre titles. So it's an interesting cast. I mean, it's real, very British movie. It's, I think the other thing that works for it, it's a very British movie. has a very British feel. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, probably the one misstep is Peter Firth had just come off of Equus. Yes. With, uh, Richard Burt. And, um, you know, he was the, the young boy du jour, and he was playing the MI6 guy. And I think, boy, did he age really well. If anyone's seen MI5 and MI6, the uh, British TV shows on BBC America. Um, but in this, I, I don't think it was as well cast as it could have been. Um, it's pompous, you know. I don't know, maybe it adds to the Britishness of it. You brought up another good point there with that, because I didn't even think of that, but it's true. 
I have mentioned my wife a couple times when we had gone to when we used to see more movies and we had that cheapo theater down by you. Uh and what happened was every time I really enjoyed a movie that was ostensibly a mainstream movie, it turned out to be a German co-production with the U.S. It turned out to be a British co-production with the U.S. or with Germany or with you know somehow there was always another country involved, Canada, France. It was never just a straight up you know Hollywood picture because there's a difference there. They actually cast quirkier actors. They take more chances. They're they're not so formulaic. Uh, there's not so much reliance on bad CG. I mean, yes, a lot of times it's cheaper. A lot of times, you know, they don't have the money to do X, Y, or Z or cast this person or that person. But that actually improves it. I mean, even something that's like the first Resident Evil movie, which was uh, Constantine Films. You know, the, the people that did Edgar Wallace movies back when. Uh, you know, it works a lot better than whatever shit they got coming out of Hollywood. You know, my wife drags me all the superhero movies. We always enjoy those. But there's a, a difference between something like that and something like, say, this, where yeah, it's not just the time and distance. It's the fact that it has a more global or European sensibility. It's willing to stretch and, okay, let's do something for the sake of the story or the sake of pure film, something more aesthetic as opposed to we got to do this so middle America is happy with it because we, we can't push any buttons because you know, some like, uh, Bible thumper is going to get pissed off at us. Who gives a fuck about those people? You know? <laughs> Let them watch their Hallmark Channel and you know, 700 Club and fuck them. Uh, so that's the difference. I really do think that makes a much more, for me, quality film not having a 100% American influence. Well, you, you know, another thing, too, as I mentioned in the book, is that this shares with, uh, oh, what the hell is his name? F. Paul Wilson, is that his name? The guy who wrote The Keep? Oh, yeah. Um, it, yeah, it shares a similarity, and there are a lot of fans of that of that author and that book. Uh, mm. I actually like that book, too. And the Michael Mann version of, interpretation, rather, of his strange. Book, the key. <laughs> Very strange movie. Yeah. And there are people who really like The Keep and that are pissed off that the people who really like the book are pissed off that, you know, people, you know, it's a whole thing. And that happened, too, with Life Force. The people that really liked the book, or Colin Wilson fans, shall we say, were kind of pissed off that there were liberties taken with the movie. But, hey, you can't do certain things, and he opened it up a lot wider than that book ever would have. Mm-hmm. I think true. he actually made a better movie of that book than if somebody who was to take it more literal. So now we get into a couple of movies that I really, uh, with one exception, have not seen for several years. Let's put it that way. I've seen them. But uh, so you may want to comment on them more than I do. Uh, the first being Invaders from Mars, uh, which was a, a sort of remake of that creepy 1950s sci-fi film with the kid, and they got that mound out, and like not really in the backyard, but he sees it with the, the alien spaceship buries itself under the sand, and gradually it takes over his parents and over the town, and the military gets involved, and eventually you know all is well because it's the 50s. But this one is kind of done 80s style, so I was like, eh. 
Yeah, it was part of this thing in the 80s. Anybody who remembers the 80s well, uh, there was a very big push towards reviving the 50s. I don't know if it was because of the conservative presidency from the Reagan or if it was because – uh, who knows? Maybe it was the, the time and distance because a lot of times things that are like 20 years old become hot again. Uh, this was 30 years old, but you know, um, I don't know if it was. There's a lot of possibilities why this was the case, but the fact is, the 50s were all totally hot in the 80s. I mean, just look at stuff like Back to the Future, for example. I mean, it was all over the place. Uh, Stand by me. I mean, you know, this was like the big deal for them. Uh, so remaking this film was kind of part of that, part and parcel of this whole 50s nostalgia obsession. But does it work that well? I didn't think it was that great. I think it was horrible or anything. But I was just like, eh. You know, you got Timothy Bottoms in the film already. That's kind of like, really? Uh, Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live was in it. I don't mind her, but it's like, well, okay. They're kind of digging a little deep there for the comedy. Um Carrion Black, the hideous cross-eyed harridan from hell, is there as the school nurse. Um, Bud Quartz in this. He popped up in a lot of things back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, another one. Talk about the shrews. All right, you already got fucking Karen Black in it. Can you find another whole, even more nasty shrew? Oh, yeah, how about Louise Fletcher, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman? And so, yeah, it was there was a really bad casting on this film, if nothing else. Uh, but I don't really have fond memories of it anyway. It was just kind of like, yeah. Whatever, it's one of those films you see it, you forget about it. So what was your take on Invaders from Mars? Well, I remember it was a troubled production. Uh, it was written by writer du jour. Uh, God, his name. Uh, he worked on that fucking piece of shit, the Buckaroo Banzai and the oh, bullshit dimension. And everybody's upset because they're remaking it. It's like it sucked back then. Yeah, they're talking. Yeah, they're talking about remaking it for TV, and 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 uh, some blowhards doing it. I forgot. Kevin Smith. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I know that this had trouble production um, because the guy that wrote it was originally going to direct it, and that didn't happen. Probably, you know, I think Toby had a deal with Canon for a couple pictures, and. Uh, so the guy got rele- rele- relegated to just writing the script. So Karen Black was like living with him, and their son was the boy. Wow! So it was like a family affair. Uh, you know, the the 1953 Invaders from Mars is effective little chiller. It's got some moments. Uh, it's the kind of thing that would work really well in 45 minutes, maybe an hour tops. You get you start pushing it at 70 minutes. Yeah. So to remake that and then have a very curtailed budget, I'm, I, I'm sure like they broke the bank with Life Force, and a year later, uh, a year later, you know, Kevin's got no more money, so they're they're really visibly uh, pulling the purse strings <laughs> for Invaders from Mars. But the thing was, nobody wanted to see the movie. There were, you know, beyond of. Uh, a Fangoria fan base, who knew about Invaders from Mars? You can't really yep. market this thing. It's a very small-town kind of picture. You know, it's a very, you know, Invaders from Body Snatcher kind of feel. You know, people get their minds taken over by this big, giant brain. And 
it works in the fifties, but it, did it work now? Not really. And I think that hurt the movie. Yeah. And I think their uh, intention to play it a little tongue in cheek at times. Mm-hmm. Maybe thought they were going for black comedy hurt it even more. Yeah. So, Hence yeah, Lorraine Newman and Louise Fletcher. Yeah. <laughs> Comedian. Not a, not, a, not a successful film. Yeah. And speaking of not successful films, you have the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which even slasher films curse about to this day. Um, it was kind of a gory slasher comedy. Do you remember there was like a short-lived thing for slasher comedies? I mean, I will say that I got a kick out of Evil Laugh. That was actually a decent one of its type. But there really aren't too many. I mean, maybe the um, what are those uh, Hello Mary Lou movies, uh, whatever the hell they were. Some of those were pretty decent from Canada. Uh, but you know, most of these kind of things, it's like well, how, it's not funny seeing somebody get hacked up. Or if it is, it's because the movie sucks, not because you're trying to make it borscht belty. Uh, and it just doesn't fucking work. So in this case. You got this stupid gory slasher comedy. It doesn't even star Gunnar Hansen, who was reduced to stuff like I mentioned earlier, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers by this time. So basically enough said on this one. Uh, But like I said, even the slasher crowd has bad thoughts about this one. I've never heard anybody say, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, that was a great film. It doesn't happen. So how about you? Well, it's got Dennis Hopper in it, man. (laughs) (laughs) Who's the other guy? Was it Ken Foree from Dawn of the Dead? Yeah. I think he was, yeah. And uh so... How hard up was Hopper after Blue Velvet? <laughs> That's all I gotta ask. <laughs> is, this, is this yeah, is this this has to be after Blue Velvet, I think. Um I don't know. It's 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 got an expansive use of uh no expansive uh how do you say it? They really worked well with the sets, what what money they had. I'm sure they had a tight budget. I think it was somewhere like two million, three million. And they did these underground corridors really well, creepy with flesh hanging and stuff like that. Very the set design is actually a pretty interesting thing on this picture. The woman that they started in it, um, I don't know where they got her from because of all the the uh, female actresses they could have chosen to actually be in this movie. I mean, they, she plays a DJ in this, remember? Yes. And, I don't know, maybe she was really good at blowing people and swallowing. I don't know. <laughs> Well, it's like starring Carolyn Williams. Who the fuck is that? <laughs> no, come on. And Dennis Hopper. Uh, it was we what? talked about. Uh, what was it? New Year's Evil and like Ross Kelly. Who the fuck's Ross Kelly? Oh, Pinky Tuscadero. <laughs> yeah, but we knew who Ross Kelly was. <laughs> That's the thing. Ross Kelly was was somebody. We didn't know who the hell this is. <laughs> and I think after this, she didn't do too much either. But anyway, yeah. it was a complete bomb because, for some reason, I don't know who's to blame, Toby or or Cannon, they decided to like go nuts, go nuts with the with the budget, such as it was, go yeah. gory, go crazy, and they submitted it to the MPAA. They said, "What are you nuts? You can't, you can't release this." Yeah. Uh, there sure. was even uh, 
a chainsaw duel or something. That was just completely nuts, bug nuts crazy, as we used to say. It's like, what? Um, the movie's not entertaining. It's got that, yeah, it's got that comedy, comedic feel. It's just not really happening. I understand there was a lot cut out. Um, I saw... I forgot who it was. On Facebook, of course. I saw some companies going to put it out, like an extra edition with a bunch of stuff on there and put back in the stuff that was cut out. Will it make a better movie? I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't really thrilled with this Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre 2. And, um... I don't know how you can improve this film as flawed as it was the first time around. If there was very little to enjoy it. And you can enjoy flawed movies. Yeah, there was very, very much so. To enjoy. Yeah. But, so, yeah, eh. I mean, and the problem is, like I said, you can't really mix, you know, gore and murders in that sense, you know, like keeping it halfway serious at least, with Borspell humor. And Borspell humor isn't fucking funny in the first place. It's like somebody wrote years ago, you know, so they love Jerry Lewis in France. Does that make him funny? Like, no, he's an asshole. So, uh, it's the same thing here. Uh, so anyway, after this, uh, he does spontaneous combustion. Now, a lot of people seem to like this one. It's got a little weird cult. I barely remember it. I saw it. I may even have it on DVD and like a set with you know something else. But all I remember is that it kind of stunk. So um, Brad Dorf is in it. And John Cipher, who I think I'd seen in a couple of things around this time, you know, a bit player that was briefly uh, active. But, yeah, I really don't remember a damn thing about it. It was, like, totally in one ear at the other. So, how about you? Well, you know, it, Toby Hooper has a penchant or, or a knack or a gift, uh, depending on how you look at all this stuff, for casting quirky actors. Like, it rails back, you know, yep. for uh, Life Force. And, you know, Brad Reef. Um, this movie, it's an interesting idea. Um, somebody uses the ability to prevent himself from totally spontaneously combusting and poof, blowing up to nothing. Yeah. Excuse me, use it as a uh, weapon? Or as a force? But, against others? But, Again, this is the kind of thing that works better in small dosage and smaller time periods. Uh, where Toby Hooper actually ended up going uh, after, pretty much. Um, it's just, um, uh, you know, uh, one of the revamps of the Twilight Zone or one of the revamps of, uh, what's the other one, the Outer Limits that they had in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. It would have been a decent episode of that, not as a film. Yeah, and uh, I also get the impression that it was aping the Scanners films, because if you remember, there wasn't just one. They made a couple of them. They could have made sequels. Most people hate them, but you know, and they aren't great or anything, but I did kind of enjoy them. They came out again recently on some Blu-ray, a couple of them together, and I was like, all right, it was cheap enough. Let me grab it and check it out. And I was like, you know what? These aren't that bad for what they are. I mean, it's on the same level as, but not as entertaining as those Mary Lou films I mentioned earlier, uh, which also came on a set of like you know three of them together or something. But you know, the Scanners films were watchable even at their worst. Spontaneous Combustion, I just had no memories of, which says something. It's like, wow, they must have really sucked. 
<laughs> so, um, so next up, he does a TV movie for the USA Network. So he's really like you know going places here. Uh, but I remember this one being decent. It's just as far as I know, it's never been released again uh, on disc or whatever. Uh, basically, the plot, as I uh, looked it up, uh, was that some Aztec cape turns a girl into a killer. And what's got it's got a really weird cast that has spaghetti western stars, Tony Perkins, and Mrs. Howell from Gilligan's Island. But I have fond memories of it from when I saw it back, you know, like nineteen ninety or whatever the hell. So who's in it is Match and Amick, uh, who was again kind of a semi popular at the time, you know, lower end uh, lead. Tony Perkins, like I mentioned, D. Wallace, William Berger who was in like a whole bunch of spaghetti westerns and a couple of uh, later Jalo-type slasher films for people like Diodato, uh, and Natalie Schaefer, like I said, uh, Mrs. Howell. So I don't know. It's a really, really strange cast, but I do remember enjoying it at the time. I can't say anything because I probably haven't seen it since 1990, you know, 1991 last time I played it. I don't know. Uh, how about, do you have any memories of it at all? Very vaguely, I, I, I do remember it, uh, very vaguely, um, that's a, you know, for a movie made for American TV around the early 90s, the cast looked cheesy then, <laughs> I yes. remember that. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Machen Emek is a cool, um, <laughs> But if they waited a few more years, they could have had abundant nudity and for cable, but that was still yes. too early. And uh, so, I don't know. I, I I very have vague ID, vague memories of this movie, so yeah. I can't really count. So here's another one that, again, I have no memory of it. If I ever even saw it, it's called Night Terrors. Apparently, it's something about sod and kinky sex, starring Robert England of all people. He's the last person I would think of, like seeing you know, walking around with a whip and chains and leather or something. Uh, I would love to see it for a laugh, but it's just like Robert England. Well, what the hell are you talking about? So, again, if you remember it, fine. But I have no. I, I don't know if I even saw it. I probably didn't. Um, and well, after, um, good. Well, actually. Uh, of all people, Graydon Clark talks about this movie in his, his autobiography. Really? Yeah, yeah. Graydon Clark was supposed to... He, they were doing a lot of movies in Russia uh, at one point and uh, filming them in Russia. And... Uh, uh, for the bra- you know, for Canon and all these guys. And, uh, Full Moon, yeah. The, the after Canon, you know, companies. And um, money would pour in from other countries. Mm-hmm. But then when they would get to Russia, they would find out it would be like very little money poured in from the other countries, you know? <laughs> and uh, they were just working with really talented but, you know, clueless people, you know, in terms of the actors and the, and the crews. Um if you look at some of the... the I presume this one was probably shot in Russia, too, and not Egypt, as they say. I think a lot of it was, like, for uh, tax purposes, too. Yeah. And I remember in the Graydon Clark book, uh, the reason why I brought that up is, like, you know, they, they brought him there to Russia to film a movie with Robin England. And England really didn't like the film, so the Graydon Clark flew back. Toby Hooper flew there, did a movie with him, probably... 
most, or if not all of this movie, Great Claw was back. Robert England showed up, got totally confused what part he was playing, and decided <laughs> to pretty much play three different roles, and he just let him do it. Now, Dude, having what? seen the movie on VHS many years ago, yeah, I don't remember a damn thing about it. I do remember not liking it, so if that makes okay. any sense. There was, like you had mentioned, a period where uh, first every movie went up to Toronto. So a lot of Skinamax movies, some of which came on DVD, some of which didn't, uh, and the sort of things you might have been seeing up all night and all that, were filmed up in Toronto. And that's when you got TV series are filmed up there, like Silk Stockings, and uh, I believe the second or third season of like Shelby Woo and uh, certainly uh, Forever Night, things like that, were all filmed up in Toronto. Uh, Renegade, you know, God knows what else they're filming up there. Uh, but after a while, I guess, you know, the uh, Canadian Parliament or whatever decided, hey, there's a lot of money here being uh, siphoned away. Let's go and raise the rates or, you know, tax these foreigners coming in or whatever the hell happened. So all of a sudden now they moved out of, they couldn't do the U.S. anymore. They were now blocked out of Toronto, you know, priced out. So where are we going to go? And they started going to, like you mentioned, Romania, Lithuania, you know, Russia. You know, it was all like behind the Eastern Curtain, all those uh, former uh, communist bloc countries. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can definitely see something like that happening because when we talk the full moon pictures, a hell of a lot of them, especially when you start getting to like the subspecies series and Meridian and things like that, that was all filmed over there. By Actually, one of the famous directors that did uh, those films or that did a lot of the full moons was a fellow named uh, Nicholas Kokolescu uh, or something like that. He actually was from the area. Um so anyway, now we move on to body bags, which we had mentioned also during the John Carpenter uh, section of what was supposed to be this combined show. Um, the thing about this, it was an HP original, and anybody who was not alive at the time has no idea of the horrors the word HP original inspires in people that were unfortunate enough to have a family member who had bought and paid for HBO. And, uh, you know, like my father always said, I paid for it, I'm going to watch it, and made everybody else suffer through this shit over and over again. Uh, these were really, really cheap crap films, kind of like what you would get on the Sci-Fi Channel later or the USA Network or the Lifetime Network. Uh, but not even that entertaining, certainly not as entertaining as the Sci-Fi Network ones, because they weren't genre films uh, as a rule. Uh, HBO was just complete dog shit. Uh, they totally revamped their reputation when they got stuff like The Sopranos, and all of a sudden everybody wanted to see them, because uh, before that, people couldn't wait to get rid of HBO. It was horrible. Um, and they would have things like This Park is Mine with Tommy Lee Jones, which was hilarious. Some of cracked Vietnam vet goes and takes over Central Park. <laughs> I mean, you know, I would love to see this thing again because it was so bad and funny, but, you know, not good stuff by a long shot. I mean, it was totally like who's the lamest soap opera director and the worst cast you can find and throw him $7 and here you go. Write a script on the back of a cocktail nap and you got an HB original. So here you go. It was an HB original with Toby Hooper and John Carpenter splitting the duties. Um, and I think there was like three parts in it, if I'm not mistaken, and Carpenter did two of them, and also uh, was the, quote, horror host. You know, he liked to do those uh, Tales from the Crypt kind of things, or EC, and he was like a coroner. And, of course, Carpenter by this time was already kind of looking half dead like he does now, so it was kind of uh, typecasting. Uh, but uh, Hooper chose to do the grossest part, you know, the grossest story in the film, which was about a baseball player who loses an eye, 
and his transplant, of course, is going to come from a necrophiliac serial killer, and the eyeball is going to take over his personality, so now he's going to you know, do that shit. Uh, it had a very weird cast in it. Mark Hamill, you know, the Joker's voice, and also uh, the trickster on TV with the Flash series. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker from the Star Wars films. Twiggy is in the damn thing. Like, who, who thought of this? Like, let me get Mark Hamill and Twiggy, put them there with John Agar, the, the stiff-necked uh, star of a whole lot of 50 sci-fi films. And Roger Corman pops up in it. I don't know why. Uh, as an actor, there's the doctor. So you go figure. You tell me what the hell's going on there. Uh, it was typical HBO. They were also doing like Tales from the Crypt at the time with that stupid rubber crypt keeper, which was my father found hilarious just because it looked like – he actually said it looked like one of my grandmothers, but you know, uh, you know, like a little old lady basically. Uh, but you know, the show sucked, and this was even um, – well, I didn't say worse, but it was on the same par. Uh, so what did you want to say about body bags? Well, uh, the cast is crazy in this whole thing. Yeah. Like in the, Carp- the Carpenter ones, you got Robert Carradine, Wes Craven, Sam Raimi, David Norton, George Buck Flower, big uh, cult item, uh, Stacey Keach, David Warner, Greg Nicotero, who's famous for The Walking Dead now, Debbie Harry. Yep. Um, you mentioned everybody that was in the, uh, in the, the Hooper uh, one. The Hooper was. It's not very strange. It did not work for me. Uh, no. I thought it was like, well, it could have been better. I'm not sure what I'm watching. Um, I had a lot of problems with it. I uh, didn't like it. And I like Carpenter. And I give Carpenter oh, yeah. a lot of leeway. You know, I just felt in the, at the end, eh. Those of you who have not heard of the John Carpenter show, which was the first section of American Gothic, where we were originally supposed to cover Hooper as well, um, go back and listen to it because we are both big John Carpenter fans. I think I'm more of a Carpenter fan than you are even. Uh, my wife knew it right away because she's like, oh, you're going to do John Carpenter? Who the fuck's this other guy? Because <laughs> you know, I never thought Toby Hooper. I always thought John Carpenter. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely worth hearing. And you're right. I do give him maybe more leeway than he deserves sometimes. Uh, but it was a uh, good and I thought pretty well-balanced show. So anyway, with this one, now he moves on to something that was even worse. He just kind of really at this point, you've already seen the best of Toby Hooper. So he does another one of these uh, crappy gore fests, this time with a killer laundromat. Seriously, it's like a closed press like steamer that's I don't know, it's not possessed, but, you know, Robert Englund's in the damn thing. And he, he kills people. And it's called the Mangler, if I didn't already say that. Um is, is there anything whatsoever you want to say about this one? Well, oddly, it was produced with money from India, as in, you know, my American friend. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Think of any credit card. Uh, so, yeah, that's pretty much it. Like I'll be nice and say the Ramsey producers. Brothers. Because <laughs> like you know, I love those Ramsey Brothers films. Yeah, that's what we're talking like Sujer Praji, Anant Singh, Nova Singh. It's like the freaking. Oh, who's the guy that died recently that did Hacko Lantern and a couple of sex films? I know that uh, somewhere between Code Red and Scorpion, they put out a bunch of his films, but never put out Hacko Lantern. I'm still pissed off about that. Um, another Indian fellow. That's why I brought him up. Jeez, oh, I can't oh, remember his name. I don't recall. You know what I'm talking about, though, don't I? Don't you? He's was, he was kind of overweight. Uh, I don't remember his name, though. Stuff like... Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. He, he did a bunch of sex films, basically, and one or two horror films, uh, but I can't remember his name right now. Uh, anyway, go ahead. I forgot you threw me off track. Uh, so, so. <laughs> well, you're saying they got money from movie. India. Money from India and money in South Africa. Wow. So, with all that money, does it make it a good film? Oh. Um. This reminds me of a, Jack a movie Lundgren. I really. I just looked it up. Oh, there's a movie I really like that you would laugh if I said I really liked it called Mouse Hunt. Okay. It's about this. Yeah, you ever seen that? No. It's this movie with the. Oh, uh, who's the guy from the Kaja Fall remake? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know those two guys. Uh, Nathan Lane. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So Nathan Lane and some British comedian guy, it's this very stylized film, very Rube Goldberg type of thing. There's a mouse, and they're in this mansion, and they got to buy the... they got to spruce up the mansion, and this mouse lives there, and, and it's a very strange thing, and the mouse, like, makes life hell for them. <laughs> and it's very... Really weird, strange set design in that movie. Some of the set design reminds me, maybe it's the same guy who worked on it. Who the hell knows? <laughs> uh, set design for The Mangler, where evil laundry press guy, <laughs> Robert Englund, <laughs> makes life hell for people. Yes. And then uh, someone, I remember they, th- this woman starts retrofitting herself to a laundry press machine. Very weird stuff. Is that Sadian stuff again that showed up in the other one with Robert England yeah. that Toby Hooper worked on? Um, this is from a Stephen King story, too. Yeah, there's another problem with it. This is around the time when I was like, okay, they were kind of dead anyway, but I totally stopped watching not just slasher films, but horror films like new ones per se. Because yeah. you started getting shit like Dr. Giggles and The Mangler instead of, you know, you name it, anything that we talk about in any of these shows. Uh, or even when I did the uh, Slasherama with Tim Ritter on Third Eye Cinema, uh, you know those films were all entertaining. This is just like complete dog shit. What are you going to say? And if uh, well, you, you didn't hear me before, I looked up the guy's name was Jag Mundra. Was the guy that died? That was talking about Hacker Mundra. <laughs> Jag Mundra. Yeah. Well, yeah. He did. She. Oh, there was one I really liked actually with Adrian Barbeau. <laughs> um, <laughs> I liked a lot of his films actually. It was a uh, real real estate something. I don't know. There was a lot. Yeah, of, like, there was one where basically the guy went in there and I think he was trying to sell real estate like you mentioned, and he wound up in a. It was almost like not Hitchcockian, but film noir esque, but throw into yeah. more of a a sex film kind of Skinamax kind of a feel. You know, somewhere between Silk Stockings and a uh, Andrew Stevens picture. Um, I can't remember the name because they're all kind of the same, you know, innocent, uh, innocent vice or whatever. There's always the kind of terminology that involves sex and you know crime, and you know for what they are, they're entertaining as shit. I know a lot of people hate them, but I grew up watching those things. I enjoy them. Uh, you know who was the, the hero of the Mangler was? Well, who? sort of Ted Levine, <laughs> who was Buffalo Bob in the um, Pee Wee's Last Adventure. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can see where this is going. Yes. But even so, worse, more things to come. 
yeah, this is where it really it's like, wow, you have no excuse at this point. Why are you still watching this crap? Uh, <laughs> the apartment complex, I never saw it, never wanted. Crocodile, uh, the toolbox murders, which is a remake of the Cameron Mitchell Wesley Yore porn star Kelly Nichols slasher, which you know for all its you know failings and merits, I, I did kind of enjoy. It wasn't a bad you know grotty sort of New York type slasher, uh, but. You know, did I really want to see Wes Craven? Uh, uh, what's his name? Toby Hope's remake of it? No. <laughs> so, uh, Mortuary, Gin. I mean, that's taking us well, all the way up to 2013 well, already. His his two box murders wasn't that bad, actually. You know, it was it was pretty. It's pretty. Oh, say this. Pretty well done. It's another picture that was shot overseas. It looks like Germany, and. Uh, so, you know, you're still, even at this late stage of the game, you're still doing film production overseas in another country. You know, it has Angela Bettis in this. You remember when she was, like, the creepy girl du jour for a while? I don't remember her by name, but I might remember her by face. Where was she in? She was in... She was in... She's really creepy. She was in... Maine. Okay. A movie made for uh, Lucky McKee. Okay. Oh, Lucky McKee films. Okay, yes. Right. Yeah, I don't yeah, know if I've seen that one, but I've seen his. She was in The Woods. She was in quite a few. She was in Perfume, the Dustin Hoffman Misfire. Mm-hmm. And then she disappeared yeah. off the face of the earth for a while. She was in Dexter as some recurring victim. The thing was, <laughs> it's very <laughs> weird but yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I remember I was hanging out with a friend one time. It was two o'clock in the morning, and uh, I was somewhere. He he was he was like he came over to me. He says, "Oh, I really want to go to bed with this girl." I said, "Oh, you want yeah. me to leave then?" He said, "No, no, we'll, we'll chat for a while. It's still late. Uh, it's still early." I says, "Dude, it's like two thirty in the morning." So. This woman turns to me, and I'm kind of a little blotto. And she goes, what did you think of this movie? I said, oh, I hate that fucking picture. (laughs) I can't stand it with a passion. He goes, no, no, it's what? He goes, she's the star. (laughs) And I look at her again, and oh, shit. (laughs) So, yeah, my claim to fame is being an idiot in front of Angela Bettis in the movie she was in. But I hated the picture anyway, so. <laughs> anyway, she starred in this movie. You're the anti wingman. We'll give you a new title. Yeah. Sleaze, you're the anti wingman. <laughs> Captain yeah. Buzzkill. <laughs> and, uh. You don't want to get laid. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> it's your story. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't there. Before, before we leave Toby Hooper, though, uh, Masters of Horror, he did contribute yes. to that. I was going to say he did a couple more television things we didn't touch on because I was going by movies, even though we did touch on Salem's Lock because it was an important one. Um, and, you know, the HBO things, which are a little different. But he did a couple of episodes here and there as well. He did what – you remember that shitty Steven Spielberg TV series, Amazing Stories? He did one in that. Uh, he did one in The Equalizer. Remember the, the crappy Edward Woodward end of his career, I'm overweight and going to walk around in a trench coat series? Um 
he did one in, and here's more apropos to body bags, Freddy's Nightmares. Remember that lousy, like, Tales from the Crypt knockoff? He actually did a right. Tales from the Crypt. Uh, and then finally he does two things for Masters of Heart. Now, that series is kind of mixed. Um, I was not happy with either of Dario Argento's entries. As a matter of fact, I hated them both uh, to the worst degrees on each one. And, you know, most people that do it, they really weren't that fucking good. Uh, the only one that I remember liking, we had discussed during a Carpenter show, was Cigarette Burns, which was excellent. Excellent thing. Mm-hmm. Best thing Carpenter did in years. Uh, but uh, Hooper did two of them, one being something called Dance of the Dead, and one being a, I guess, a take on the Ambrose Bierce uh, short story, The Damn Thing. Uh, I have not seen either of them because my overall experience of uh, Masters of Horror was kind of not that great. You know, everyone I got was like, well, that's kind of sucked. Oh, that kind of sucked. Oh, I got to slow this one back off. Uh, so I had stopped. Uh, but nonetheless, he did two of them, and maybe you have seen them. So go ahead if you have. I, haven't, I did see them. I haven't seen them in a long time. And, uh, no, uh, apparently you got the Middle Eastern people uh, back to his movie called The Dijin. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. DJ. Well, it's The Dijin. It's like The Genie, basically. It's, uh, yeah, it's yeah, a, a demonic spirit that maybe you can make work for you, maybe not. So he actually shot this movie in the United Arab Emirates in 2013. It's still ah. waiting for a release. <laughs> well, well, apparently the producers did not like the uh, depiction of right. the. Uh, I guess the, the Arabic uh, culture. <laughs> yeah. Although it was like. I don't. I don't quite understand because reading up about the up, about the film, they they were on his back the whole time. Right. So maybe they just didn't like a horror film, but they must have known what they were getting. Yeah. Well, they probably wanted the money, so, but then they said, "No, we can't release this now." <laughs> it could. It could have been. It could have been a thing. Um, it's not unheard of. It used to be done a lot in the 90s. If you recall, movies were made and never released, and the picture's just still laying around in the vault somewhere. Yep. And sometimes boulderized version of, versions of them would get released as uh, Alan Smithy productions. Yep. Uh, Alan Smithy picture, actually. So, yeah, this last thing's 2013. It was late 2013, so it might show up. One day, I understand, has not come out. There was a trailer at one time. I don't know anymore. Okay. So, uh, that is, I guess, basically it for Toby Hooper. I mean, he was a very mixed character. Um, I was actually surprised. I mean, yeah, we do our usual lots of asides, but I was surprised we actually managed to make a full-length show out of it. I figured, eh, it'll probably be like an hour and ten minutes or something. There's not too much to say about this guy uh, once you get past the two or three films he did that were worthwhile. And after that, it's more hit and miss. You know, some of them you may like, some of them may hate, uh, but there's nothing really that stands out once you get past a certain period of his career. Um, well, we got a good we got a good two-hour show tonight out of this, yeah. Yeah, it surprised me. Um, yeah. So, anyway, unless there's anything else you want to say about him on closing, um, yeah. next week 
we will be talking uh, the first of our Mexican horror shows. Uh, you had wanted to cover first the uh, Lucha Libre films, which are basically, for those who don't know, they're films like uh, they feature Mexican wrestlers. They're actually, these guys were popular wrestlers at the time. So picture like John Cena and The Undertaker and The Big Show or something going walking around in real life, and that's who they are 24-7. Uh, all the kids come around and visit the house, and they leave their masks on all the time so nobody can see them, and they, they their features get all distorted from this, like what happened to El Santo. Uh, and, you know, people like you know, Blue Demon and Neil Boscaris and whatever. And uh, a lot of times they'll be fighting monsters and mad scientists. They actually put them in pulpy movies, and they were extremely popular, and there were a lot of them. And some of them came over here uh, in dubbed versions by people like Kager and Murray or uh, restored versions from people like the short-lived Casa Negra. Uh, but a lot of them you have to get uh, from Spanish-only discs uh, from people like Sony. They put it out you know, for the Spanish market cheap, but you know, they have no subtitles or anything. So we have a bunch of those as well just because there's not much plot to follow with these things. They're all kind of the same. Uh, but we will be talking that next week. Uh, so for our first installment of Mexican Horror, we'll be talking Lucha Libre Contra los Monstruos, uh, where we look into, once again, cinema south of the border in sunny Mexico. One of the most recognizable and recognizably insane subgenres of cinema is that of the luchador, featuring well-known masked wrestlers, like I've mentioned, facing off against mummies, mad scientists, zombies, vampires, sinister dwarves, and more often paired with other notables and rivals in the ring, which is interesting. Uh, we'll be talking surprisingly lengthy film career of the legendary Enmascarado de la Plata, uh, Man in the Silver Mask, El Santo. Uh, his longtime foe, but cinema bestie, Blue Demon, uh, Mil Mascaras, Superzon, Tinieblas, and more. Uh, so that will be next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so anything else you wanted to get off your chest or cover or anything? Or are we just closing yes, on we it? promise not to name check every damn Santa movie. There's a lot. Oh of God, there's like hundreds of those damn things. You be kidding me? I mean, no, you've seen gonna, them all. We're going to pick the juicy fruit from uh, most of them because I actually seen a lot of them. I was a, I was I had a Mexican wrestling phase for one time. I was even <laughs> yeah, we taping did too. them off a of Galavision. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, 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 I mean, we got like Spanish discs and everything else. But, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to trying to catch up on some of those. So anyway, thanks for listening to the Toby Hooper Show. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Life Force, a film we both agree on. Uh, oh, yeah. Is probably, possibly his best film. And uh, one that everybody should take another look at. Salem's Lot, another good picture. So, and maybe um, lost. I don't think he, he lost his talent. I just think he missteps, missteps. And uh, it's like the John Carpenter story nowadays. You know, they don't go back and hire these, you know, these people uh, for new product, you know, and uh, yep. for new movies. And unfortunately, you know, unless unless it's a fan that's going to come by and, and give them an infusion of money, chances of we're seeing some new good work from these people is getting slim. Slim, yeah. But anyway, thanks for listening to tonight's show. All right, and we will see you all next Thursday for... Uh, Lucha Libre contra los monstruos. Uh, see you then. Adios, folks. Thanks for listening tonight. I hope you enjoyed our little chat on Toby Cooper. Uh, join us next week as we talk uh, Lucha Libre contra los monstruos, like I said. Uh, if you are a filmmaker or a musician, you want to sign here, uh, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our WordPress, wordpress.com, uh, or sorry, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. 
we're on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash weird scenes one or at weird scenes one. Uh, weird scenes inside the gold mine brought to you by the new Papa Online Network. in store for your business this week at Staples? Doing business like a CEO while saving like a CFO. Staples has all the supplies you need to run your business like a boss at prices that'll make your bookkeeper smile. Now that is an achievement. Everything from markers and pens to 2019 desk calendars. And right now, a 12-pack of Sharpie markers and an 8-pack of Expo dry erase markers are only $4.99 each. At Staples, where there's a whole lot in store. Ends one nineteen nineteen in store only.